we are, like I said earlier, um, we're in our series on the pillars of our faith. And this morning, I have titled the message, Who is the Covenant God? We've been looking at these attributes of God uh, the last several weeks, and uh, specifically, we've wrestled through the person of God and what He is, and in that, we looked at His essential attributes, um, these, these attributes of God um, that, that sometimes we look at like immutability, and we don't really um, think positive, like I say think positively, they're hard for us to grasp, and, and so some of the things that we do is we say God is an, a God who never changes, and so we put these words like immutability and other words like impassibility on, uh, the, uh, in, in our descriptions of Him, and what we're looking at in those, those terms is this idea of the ontology of God. Now, that may be a new word, but it's a word that I hope you can reflect on, maybe write down in your notes. Um, you'll, you'll hear it also phrased this way, that we look at an ontological argument about, about God. Essentially, I'm sharing that word because if you listen to podcasts or read more books about this, you're going to run into that word. And it's, it's often not defined real well, but I want to try to give you a, a real short definition of it. Ontology looks with the, the very essence or being of a person, okay? So when we think about the ontology of God, we're talking about his being, his essence, his nature, um, what it means for him simply to exist. And you think, well, I, that, that's a big can of worms. Absolutely, God has always existed. He's eternal. So this morning, what I, I want us to do is we're going to move from those ontological um, attributes, and we're going to start looking at these covenantal attributes. And one of the things that I want to really make sure that we get is that these covenantal attributes really reflect the relationship that God has with us. That's how we know them. Even though they're part of, if I could say this like in, in the sense that they certainly are part of his ontological being, they, are, they move into this un, uh, realm where we understand who God is and how he relates to us through these things. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm not removing these things um, from, from his ontology. But I want to say this, um, these things, and, and I wish I, I, I'm thinking about, at some point, we're going to have to do a message on the simplicity of God, okay? And how many of you are familiar with that concept? Okay, there's about five or six of you. Okay, it, it is, it's a really rich concept, and, and we talk about God's simplicity. It simply means this, like if I'm kind of do a nutshell real quickly, that God can't be divided up into parts in, in, uh, in his being, okay? Like, if I cut my hand off, you'd go, well, Matt just lost his hand, okay? That's part of me. God has no parts. He, he's so simple that he has no parts. That, that's hard for us to understand when we think about all these multitudes of attributes that we're looking. But these attributes, they, they don't really, ex you can't exist apart from one another. They're, they're all who God is. D does that make a little bit of sense. So you can't divide them up into slices of pie and go, oh, well, that part of God, that, that his holiness or that his um, immutability, I can di like dissect him. It's in every attribute, those things always exist together. Does that help a little bit? Okay, so it's, it's kind of complicated, but we, we need to look at that at some point. So with that being said, these relational attributes, they provide a means by which God reveals himself and connects us to him. 
And so as we look at these things, um, we need to recognize that these relational attributes really help us understand our own thoughts, our own attitudes, our own affections, and, and the actions by which we operate in faithful obedience to Him. If we don't understand these, these attributes right, it means this, we can't really relate to Him in, in through the covenant. Even though He's relating, it like breaks down because we're not responding rightly to who He's revealed Himself to be. Does that make sense? And, and so, as He reveals Himself through these attributes, we then begin to go, oh, I now can relate to Him rightly because there's a restoration that's taking place in me as I understand who He is and He's working these things out in me through my salvation and sanctification. So, I want to give you a... Um, so we're going to look at these three attributes, okay, this morning. So if you're taking notes, I, I would encourage you, you could probably just bullet point these things down the line. They're easy to remember, so if you want to just wait and do it for space uh, purposes, that's fine. But we're going to look at his goodness, his holiness, and his righteousness. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Joel chapter 2. Um, and I, has anybody remembered me teaching on Joel chapter 2? Okay. This is one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Okay, so we're going to get to, to dive into this this morning. I want to give you a, um, a little caution, though, about these relational attributes these, uh, that describe the, the covenant that we have with God. And the, the first is this, this, this kind of warning. And you'll, you'll notice this, how cynics, um, have, have you all ever talked to somebody that's really cynical about the Lord? And they say, well, God can't be good. God can't be just. God can't be righteous because we look at things and we see that he doesn't operate in a fair way. That, that's kind of a, a contemporary argument that would um, press against God uh, and, and these attributes and that those cynics would really uh, try to uh, control their, their, our views about who the Lord is. What, what, here's what's happening is when they look at the goodness or the holiness or the righteousness of God, what they do is they don't recognize who they are. They instead define some kind of paradigm, and they say that God, in their cynicism, God cannot fit that properly. And so essentially what they're doing is they're operating above the, the lordship of the Lord himself and es establishing their own boundaries for, for who he is, even though they're using the same terms. And so that's why we have to be careful to recognize that what God is doing as he reveals these attributes to us is he's, he's showing us where we fall short and how we must respond to him and who he is uh, uh, so that we would properly relate through the covenant of salvation with him. So let's, let's now look at this passage, okay? Um, Joel 2, we're going to start in verse 12. And let me give you a little bit of background about the, the book of Joel real quickly. Um, first of all, we, we know who Joel is. We don't really know the exact time that he was prophesying. He, he, there's not enough historical context there. But what we do know is there's basically two prophecies that occur. In chapter 1 is the first of the prophecies, and in chapter 2 is the second of the prophecies. In the first prophecy, the era that Joel is uh, addressing is directly relating to them. So he talks about this famine, or this, uh, yeah, famine in the land that has come about because locusts have actually invaded the land and destroyed all the crops. And the, when the crops are destroyed, that means that cattle and all the farming is destroyed and people's lives are, are in disarray because the, the famine is, is putting them in, in a position where they cannot thrive. 
So, so first of all, is there, there's this uh, locust plague that, that comes. Because the people are weak, then there's a second type of uh, event that occurs in the first prophecy. There's a, a nation that comes in, and they war with the Israelites, and they basically destroy, further destroy the people in the land. And so it's this natural consequence first that the Lord uses in the life of the Israelites. And then the second is this uh, um, warring nation that comes in. Both of those are because the people are living in rebellion. And so both of these uh, prophecies is interesting. What Joel calls the, the people to do is to fast and to mourn and to repent of their sins. So the second prophecy is much like the first, except it's a future prophecy. It's not one that's happening in that era. It's something that is going to come about later. And that's uh, what all, the, all scholars agree, and I, th I think they're absolutely right, is that this is pointing to something future. But there's something in this prophecy that is so essential for us to understand about the covenant relationship that we have with the Lord that is beautiful. Because in this, one of the most interesting things about this passage to me is that uh, when the day of Pentecost comes in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, and the disciples, or some 120 disciples meeting in the upper room, they're praying, the, the tongues of fire come down upon them, and then they go out into the city in Jerusalem, and they're preaching. And the, the, remember, the people, the witnesses to the preaching think that they're drunk because they're speaking in other tongues and people are hearing it in their native languages. And Peter gets up and the first part of the message that he preaches is actually out of Joel 2. That we're, gonna, uh, we're not going to actually read this morning, but we need to understand what the tone is for what he's prophesying or what he's, why he's using this passage in Acts. So let's begin reading now. Hopefully that's a good context and we can move forward in the text. So Joel 2, verse 12. Yet... Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Because what was the first thing that most cultures would do when they're weeping and mourning and fasting and repenting? It was about the garments, wasn't it? But he's like, it's not about the garments. This is a heart matter, and we need to listen to that carefully. He says in verse, continuing in verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Wow. So here's what's interesting. We're, we're going to look at the idea of the goodness of God first this morning. Now, Interestingly enough, I don't think that the goodness, well, I know that the goodness of God is not actually described in that simple term of goodness in this passage. But the goodness of God is described by these four qualities that are attributed to his action. And so when we think about God's goodness, we need to recognize how he operates and reveals his goodness to his people. Does that make sense? So, so he, certainly God is good. We know that when Jesus was confronted at one point, the, the, um, that rich young ruler looked at him and said, uh, good teacher. And he said, wait a second, there's none good but God, right? So he, he, we certainly know that God is good in this attribute, but it's such a, an important relational covenantal attribute that we need to understand how he shows us or demonstrates his goodness to us. So let's look again at um, these four uh, qualities of goodness. And, and I want to give you this because I think there's 
there's essentially two kinds of goodness of God that are qualified into a couple areas. The first of God's goodness is this, in just the creation itself. When we think through Genesis 1, and, and all through 3 actually, um, when Jesus, or when God created, what is the description or the, the quality that is described uh, or, or attributed to all of the creation that was established? God saw it and it was good, right? And, and so last week, though we didn't read um, the, all of the psalm that, that talked about our creation, how the Lord formed us in our mother's womb, we know that his formation of creation is good. So, so at some level, all things that God has created are good. So that's one type of good way that goodness is qualified. The second is moral goodness. So when we think about moral goodness, it has to do with the, uh, both the goodness of God and how he acts and then the goodness of God and spiritual things. Does that make sense? So that when God acts, he is good in all ways. And when we look at spiritual goodness, he is good in all ways in spiritual things. So let's, let's look at how those things play out in these four qualities. So look, look back at verse 13. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Um, those four qualities, they emphasize the transformation that occurs in us when we experience a relationship with God. So when we think about the goodness of God expressed in uh, his graciousness, I mentioned earlier before I knew Christ, I, I could have experienced his mercy because I was in the misery of my sin. But what I experienced when I came to salvation was his graciousness because graciousness deals with the evil and, and the sin that, that is producing a distinction from God. So when, when we're operating in sin and we're moving away from God, his grace is what draws us back. Does, does that make sense? So m his mercy deals with our misery and sin, but it's not changing necessarily the entirety of the relationship where our, our bents are away from him. Mercy gives us a, a reprieve from the misery. Grace satisfies the, the soul issues that we have. Do you see the distinctions? So when God expresses his goodness, he is showing us his graciousness. He is showing us his mercy. And then it says also that he is slow to anger. Boy, that, that is such a good thing for us to recognize, that God in his slowness to anger is patient with us, giving us opportunities to recognize our sin, to respond to his grace and his mercy. When, if he was not slow to anger, the immediate result would be that we should be disciplined and his wrath poured out upon us. But in his goodness, he is slow to address us, patient in that address. And when I say slow, it doesn't mean he's not doing it. He's working according to the bents of who we are and according to the, the Spirit is at work uh, using the Word of God to impact our lives. So his goodness is being meted out all the time. And then I love this, this last one. It talks about, uh, in the, in the uh, English, we translate it most often, steadfast love. And, and I would encourage you, especially if this, this thought like, uh, catches your heart this morning or mine, go to Psalm 25. Psalm 25 is a psalm that David um, works out this idea of the steadfast love of God. What that word, it's, it's a Hebrew word um, that is the word hesed. If you, um, does anybody watch Amazing Race? 
Nobody? Some of y'all? Okay, some of y'all. Have y'all seen the new one? Spoiler alert. Okay, I won't, I won't tell you what's going on. Um, but so, so acid, this is one of those Hebrew words you kind of get to cough and like almost spit when you say it. So everybody try it for just a moment. If, if you're nervous about somebody behind you, just lean forward a little bit. So rain, you can do it this morning. So it's almost like coughing. Chesed. That's the way you would say it. Chesed. Okay? That word is a word that is relegated to the Lord. And what it emphasizes is the love of a greater to a lesser. One who, so the, the one who has every uh, resource at his uh, fingertips, so to speak, to one who has no ability to provide for any means of their own. See, the truth is, I, I can't love God apart from his love for me. Isn't that biblical truth? We love because he first loved us. Chesed. It's his steadfast love towards us when we deserve nothing, can reciprocate with nothing, but he bestows it upon us. That is a result of the goodness of God. So when we think about the goodness of God, see this relational attribute, it shows up in so many other ways. And, and that's what I hope we can get this morning, that is his graciousness, it's his mercy, it's his uh, steadfast, or it's his, his long-suffering or, or patience with us, and his steadfast love, which we don't deserve. His goodness is given to us. And we, as believers, different from the cynics, we need to recognize those are the things that we absolutely need. And we can't match his standard in those things because his goodness is it's defining. We can't redefine those and put him on trial. Because if we've done that, we, we don't understand our own position with him. Does that make sense? And that's why this covenant aspect of the relationship in this attribute is so essential. So, um, I want to make sure that, that we get this too. When we think about God's goodness and these relational qualities, because I, I want to distinguish us from the cynics, hopefully, what we have to realize is we cannot come to God and command these things of Him. Does, does that make sense? Because I think too often our approach is, God, this is who you are. I command you to do this. At least I can fall into that. I can think that he owes me because of these things. And the truth is, I'm not wise enough. I know I'm not discerning enough to be able to do that. Therefore, I ought not command these things of God. I instead ought to, with humility, come and recognize that I fall short. And these are the things that I appeal to God for to work in me so that my relationship with him would become right. Because if I get it out of order and I demand him of him, then he's the one that's capitulating to me. And that doesn't make him a God uh, who's worthy of worship. And it puts me as the one who's the God. And I'm not worthy of worship, nor are you. And so we ought to come into this uh, scenario understanding that this is God's will uh, and his will alone by which he works these things out according to his goodness all of the time. And he will in every aspect relate properly to us because he is immutable, because he is right in all things. So, so hopefully that helps us understand why these 
these attributes as relational or covenantal attributes are so essential in us responding to Him. So let's look at the next uh, attribute, His holiness. Let's read verses 15 to 17 together. So, so here's the, the call. There's, there's the call to repentance, the call to understand that these things are uh, good of God and for us to res- the, for the people there to respond with a grain offering and a drink offering, but it's more about their hearts than just the outward things. And then, they, then Joel says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. So it's like, this is what you're to do. Here's the, the reason. Now this is what you've got to do. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? So here's what is is being shared in this section. This idea of consecration. It's, It's actually a word, the same Hebrew root word that we get the word holy from, kadosh, okay? Um, not that you have to remember the Hebrew, uh, but, but the idea is that whole, the holiness of God demands something from His people. So, so here's what I, I want to get at. First of all, the idea is that God is free from defilement. Within Him, everything about Him is totally and utterly pure. D- does that, I know you go, yeah, Matt, no big deal, right? But we need to remember that. So when we think about His goodness and we think about His holiness, in relationship with Him, we must understand that nothing holy or defiled or impure can actually be in relationship with Him except for by His grace, His mercy, His steadfast love, and His slowness to anger. You see why His goodness impacts his, uh, us in relationship to His holiness? And what he's calling us to do is to set ourselves apart from the world. See, the relational aspect is when we know God is holy and he doesn't want anything unholy in his presence, we would consecrate ourselves to him. Hmm. So this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. How'd you do this week? How did you do this month? How'd you do this year? Are you consecrating yourself? To the Lord? Are you embracing the things of the world? That's a tough question. Because it's easy to to focus in on the world's values, worldly things, to, to pursue the temporal instead of the eternal. And by a lot of means, we fall short. Fortunately, we get to go back to God's goodness. But I want you to hear the urgency with which Joel prophesies to the people. He, he, he lists these groups and listen to how serious the, the demand is for them to respond. He says, let's look back at it, verse 16, consecrate the congregation. So it's like, get everybody. Don't leave anybody out. He says, let's make sure we, don't, we know who all it entails. Assemble the elders. That, that would be the older people in this context, not the elders of the church, okay, but the older people. And he says, then what? Gather the children. So the youngest, he says, wait, 
Don't just think it's the school-aged children. He says even this, gather even the nursing infants. So in other words, everybody's got to be there. Because if the nursing infants are brought in, who does that mean that's bringing them? The mamas, right? And it's the dads. It's everybody together is gathering. He goes on further. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the bridal chamber. Here's the implications of that. They are not even to consummate their marriage. There is such a, a level of urgency to repent and go to the Lord that they are to leave that chamber and immediately go and exercise that, that setting apart of themselves to the lordship of God. That, that they would operate in holiness to worship him in all things and not to be satisfied with anything in the world. You see why it's such a, I think, contrast, in a sense, from how we often operate today to the way the Lord wants us to operate. And this relational attribute is calling us to something very distinct. And I, I would emphasize this as well. As he goes on, he says in verse 17, this is to happen to, between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Folks, if we are not a people that establish our minds, our wills, and emotions, and the actions of our lives to be focused on the Lord and the things of the Lord, people will look at us and they will wonder where our God really is. And if that doesn't describe our day and age, I don't know what does. We have a responsibility as the people of God to, to consecrate ourselves, to set ourselves apart as holy in all things. Now, I'm not going to meddle so much as to ask what's going on in your lives. That's the Holy Spirit's job and responsibility, and he'll do a far better job of it than I will. But I can guarantee if every one of us are honest enough with ourselves, we know the areas that we still need to consecrate, that we need to look at the goodness of God and respond and say, Lord, this is who you are. You're not pleased. I need to, to consecrate myself in these areas and be in a better, stronger, more effective relationship with you. Now, let's look at the last thing. Let's look at the righteousness of God. Verses 18 through uh, 21, I think is what I've got. Nope, let's, let's go to 21 through 23. Actually, we'll, we'll back up and read the, the rest though, okay? Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will arise, for he has done great things. Isn't that a great promise? That restoration is on the way when we respond rightly. Now listen to this. Verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Let me pause there. So when you think about the locust creating this devastation and desolation across the land, what does the land itself, the crops, the fields, 
What does it need? Say it. It needs water. What else? Sunlight. So it's going to need rain. It's going to need good seasons. It's going to need the removal of the locusts. It's going to need a time to be renewed, right? Restored, okay? That's what's happening. The Lord is saying, I've removed the northerners. They're not taking advantage of you anymore. They're not destroying the land. I'm going to restore the land properly. The the impact of the locusts will be undone. That's a good thing. Now listen to this. Verse 22. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. For the trees bear its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. So what do the animals need? They need food. And what do animals feed on? Green grass, fruits of the trees, the vines. They, they, because the land is being restored, now the, the um, animals, all, all of the, the farm animals that the people need are being restored as well. Isn't that a good thing? So you see how the Lord is giving provision in every area of the people's lives. Now let's look at verse 23. Be glad, O children. So who is Joel addressing here? This is where it gets so interesting to me. He's addressing the people right? The children of of God, okay? Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Now, okay, I'm going to call time out here. Pause. It was raining today at some point when y'all came in. It's not raining now, even though it's predicted. We we can hear it on our roof. So, I I don't know. Miss Linda, can I pick on you? Miss Linda said she left her umbrella in the car this morning, and when she goes out in the rain, her hair that she probably spent a good bit of time, it looks lovely this morning, by the way. Um, she, I, I already told her that she looked really nice today, didn't I? I'm not, I'm not you know, I, I'm not blowing anything up here. Um, but she said, because my umbrella was in the car, I didn't want to get out in the rain, so I grabbed a pie pan and threw it over my head until she could get an umbrella. So next time it rains, everybody go over to Linda and Leonard's house and just watch, get a video. <laughs> I'm teasing, okay? But, but that's it. We don't like the rain necessarily, do we? Like now, little kids, they like to go play in it and play in the puddles. I get it. I mean, we do like the rain. But what does rain really do for us physically? I mean, I know it provides water and all that stuff. But, but it kind of misses the point here. I get why the land is restored. I get what happens for the animals, but I don't know why autumn rains are so important for us. Here's my point. I don't think that the original Hebrew means autumn rains, okay? Here's what I'm getting at, and and I have good reason to to, to believe this. I've studied it at length, talked to, uh, um, what are they called, scholars who are working on translations. Does anybody have the NIV? here this morning. Michael, you do. Do you have a footnote there in your NIV about the autumn rains for righteousness or for vindication? On 23, you do. What's the footnote say? Okay, great. That's not what I was expecting it to say, but it got to my point. Okay. Um, Dr. Larry Walker was my Hebrew professor when I was at Mid-America. He was on the NIV translation committee. I had his class teaching through the Hebrew Old Testament. And I actually taught my lesson on this passage and did an extensive discussion uh, on what this means. Here's the idea. The words 
moray, the letzidikah, which are trans, or the Hebrew words right there, can actually be like understood in a couple different ways. So yes, moray could be autumn rains, but it's also hamoray, which could also, because it gets into complicated stuff with vowel pointings that are not in the original Hebrew and us understanding them, crazy deep stuff, okay? But here's the point. And this is what the footnote said, and this is what Dr. Walker and I talked about. If you go back to a 1984 translation uh, or version of the NIV, in the text itself, it has the teacher for righteousness, but they changed it back. Here's what we need. We don't need autumn rains for righteousness, do we? We need a teacher for righteousness. We need Jesus Christ, the one who is the only righteous one, to bring a transformation to us. See, the relational attribute that is here presented is that, now let's, let's read it with this idea in mind. Verse 23 again. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the teacher for righteousness, the one who would show us what righteousness really is, fulfill it in himself, and then he would reign it upon us. Does that make better sense for what we need as people? Well, I certainly think it does, so let's keep going. For he says, he has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Now, now, that's the metaphor of what Joel is getting at, is the teacher for righteousness. He is, in a sense, raining down upon you these things. But what we need is, a, is righteousness that is only provided for us by Christ. So when we think about these attributes, the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God, we are short of all of those things. So let me prove my point a little bit further. Let's look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. Hosea Joel, so it'll be just back to the left a little bit. If you have an electronic Bible, push your buttons and go find the book. Hosea 6. Everybody's operates differently if it's electronic. Hosea 6, 3. Listen to this. And, and I want you to hear how he uses the same metaphor of the rain to describe this holy one that we need. Hosea 6.3, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. Now, this is certainly about the person of the Lord. And he says, he will come to us, what? As showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. See, it's this person that is, is one, the one poured out upon us. That's what God did for us in the person of Jesus. He didn't remain in heaven. He was poured out that we might understand his righteousness. Look at Hosea 10, verse 12. Turn too far. Hosea 10, 12. See, uh, I'm sorry, sow for yourselves righteousness. There's that same word. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. See, see this is the, the picture that through Christ, when we are repentant and we sow for ourselves righteousness, not of our own, he is the one who rains the righteousness upon us. He brings it upon us as if we were in a drought, dependent upon him to restore. And it is the righteousness of Christ that we need that he gives us. It's that relational attribute that is so important. So righteousness is, not, it is certainly what is external to us, but it's provided to us by Christ. So now, let's think through Acts chapter 2. So turn over there. 
And I'm not going to take time to read the entire passage. Maybe that's something that you could go back and do later this week. But in Acts 2, and and I'm just going to summarize this, Peter's going through and he's using all sorts of Old Testament text to share with the, the audience there in Jerusalem the importance of the gospel message and the hope that Christ provides. And in verse 21, he makes basically this summary. Now this, again, this comes after what he shared about the young men prophesying, old men prophesying, young men having dreams, and all these things that are in Joel 2, verses 28 and following. And then he says in Acts 2, verse, um, let, let me see, let's, let's pick up in about verse uh, uh, 16. But this is what was uttered through, well, this is the prophecy. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What, what Peter is emphasizing and what Joel, he's, he's taking this from Joel, is that we need Jesus. That everyone who calls upon the teacher for righteousness, Jesus, will be saved. And if we don't call upon Jesus, we are left in our sin, falling short of the glory of God, being dead in those trespasses amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2. See why this is so important? When we consider who the Lord is and these relational attributes and how he has revealed himself through the covenant and our need for him to make us right, for us to depend upon His graciousness, His mercy, His uh, slowness to anger, our long-suffering, His steadfast love, that we would see that He is holy and that we are not, and that He provides righteousness through Christ, you're transformed, but not by any means of our own. And so what's the responsibility that we have? This is, I think it's simple. I think it's hard, but it's simple. We contemplate the things of God and we depend upon His work in our lives. And we constantly respond to those relational attributes through the covenant that we possess in Christ that He has given us. And we walk in that faithfully. That's the call. That's the hope, that we would walk in a manner worthy of Christ. That's that's the good news. And and so this morning, I trust that as we learn these things or, or reconsider them maybe for some of us, that these would be the things by which we worship. And we, we so uh, reflect and contemplate on the things of the Lord that we recognize Him for His glory, for who He is, and that we would be grateful in a worshipful response to everything that He's doing in our lives. So I want us to pray together for just a moment, okay? And then we're going to give you some instructions about the rest of the, the morning. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for how you consistently reveal yourself to us through the truth of Scripture. And Lord, my prayer is this, that for each one of us here, 
we would know this, that you're a God who is always good, you're always holy, you're, you alone are righteous. Lord, when we have no goodness in, of our, in and of ourselves, when we are unholy, Lord, when, when you look at us and we ought to be declared unrighteous, nothing right or just in us, Lord, because you see us through Christ, we are transformed. Lord, what that means is we simply have the, the response or are required to respond to the good news of Christ, that he alone is the, the one to whom we should put our faith. And when we do that, Lord, you tell us that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our righteousness. And when we confess Jesus as Lord uh, with our mouths and believe in our hearts that he's been raised from the dead, we will be saved. Lord, that is an incredible promise, the promise of hope. And it's centered in this covenant relationship that you've established with us through Christ. Lord, let us walk those things out. But Lord, in, for just a quietness of a few seconds, myself, like everyone in this room, there's things that interrupt that. There's things that prevent it. There's things where we still uh, look to our own flesh and our own means instead of to you. And Lord, what we need to do is we need to, like the congregation was encouraged, we need to consecrate ourselves to you. So Lord, we want to take inventory. We want to just stop for a moment and listen carefully to your Spirit's prompting. And if there's sin in our lives, if there's things that we've been neglecting in our relationship with you, Lord, we need to take a moment and confess those things. We need to repent of those things. And we need to return to you. So Lord, I want to be quiet for just about 30 seconds and let everyone do that here in this place. Heavenly Father, you are the God who keeps covenant. What, what an incredible, encouraging, hopeful thought for us today. Because, Lord, the truth is it's kept through the faithfulness of Jesus. His obedient life and sacrifice, which we've already celebrated this morning. So, Lord, we come to you humbly and we say thank you for your goodness, holiness, and uh, righteousness towards us. As we go from this place today, Lord, as we serve you through the weeks, Lord, may, may we be people that because of our faithfulness to you, because of our worship, Lord, it wouldn't be asked like it was asked of the Israelites or the, that, that question was given, that people would wonder where you are. Lord, instead, may it be said of us that when people see us walking faithfully with you, celebrating your goodness, that they would know that you are the true and living God. And because of that, the hope of the gospel would be communicated to those in our community that are lost or hurting, discouraged, and we would be people that point them to the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we typically end our services with this statement, and I just want to encourage us with it now, that we would be a people that go and connect in communities and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others. Be blessed by how we live out our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.